Because there is no single gatekeeper who keeps track of American evangelicals, it's hard to say just how many evangelicals in the United States there are. But over the last 40 years, Gallup puts the number at somewhere between 38% and 47% of all Americans. That's a big number, particularly when surveyors at Pew and Gallup include not only white evangelicals, but also African-American and Latino Christians who say they've had a born-again experience. So are American evangelicals particularly susceptible to new phenomenon that draw upon their existing religious convictions? Well, if you're like most Americans, you've probably heard of QAnon, at least it being mentioned in passing, but don't know much about it. So the pairing of an executive Atlantic editor and a blogger and evangelical campus dean is a particularly rich opportunity to get up to speed on this strangely important and growing phenomenon. What are QAnon's roots? Who is Q, its anonymous leader, making drops for a growing body of adherents to track? And as a fast-growing conspiracy theory fixated on President Trump's role in keeping international sex predators and pedophiles at bay and withholding evil through present-day politics, how does QAnon, quote, run along tracks established by existing religious teaching, as Ed Stetzer talks about, praying perhaps especially on this nearly 41% of Americans who across ethnic lines today hold evangelical beliefs. In the last few months, Adrian LaFrance and Ed Stetzer have each published first-rate pieces about QAnon. They wrote for different audiences. Adrian wrote a long-form cover story in The Atlantic, where she's the executive editor, and Ed wrote in USA Today, where he's an occasional contributor from his leadership post at Wheaton College. Ed directs the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton, where he also serves as its dean of the Graduate School of Mission, Ministry, and Leadership. He also co-hosts the Stetzer Leadership Podcast, aimed at evangelical pastors and cultural leaders, and he writes a regular column at Christianity Today. Adrian has been a writer and editor at The Atlantic since 2014. She previously covered politics, technology, and the media at outlets that include Neiman Journalism Lab, Honolulu Weekly, and NPR's Hawaii Public Radio. Since she joined The Atlantic, the magazine has attracted as many as 90 million unique monthly online readers and over 600,000 paying subscribers. Her June cover story, The Prophecies of Q, is linked in the show notes, along with Ed's September USA Today piece and a few related resources. Adrian and Ed represent the best of thoughtful mainstream journalism and thoughtful religious writing so I hope you'll greatly enjoy this conversation. Adrian, you know, I really enjoyed reading your cover story, The Prophecies of Q. As a matter of fact, it kind of nudged me that I needed to write something more written towards the, my evangelical community. It was in the June issue of The Atlantic. I wonder if you might maybe just read the opening paragraph for listeners in case maybe they haven't seen the piece. I'd be happy to, and thank you so much for having me. So the piece starts this way. If you were an adherent, no one would be able to tell. You would look like any other American. You could be a mother picking leftovers off your toddler's plate. You could be the young man in headphones across the street. You could be a bookkeeper, a dentist, a grandmother icing cupcakes in her kitchen. You may well have an affiliation with an evangelical church, but you are hard to identify just from the way you look. 
which is good because someday soon dark forces may try to track you down. You understand this sounds crazy, but you don't care. You know that a small group of manipulators operating in the shadows pull the planet's strings. You know that they are powerful enough to abuse children without fear of retribution. You know that the mainstream media are their handmaidens in partnership with Hillary Clinton and the secretive denizens of the deep state. You know that only Donald Trump stands between you and a damned and ravaged world. You see plague and pestilence sweeping the planet and understand that they are part of the plan. You know that a clash between good and evil cannot be avoided, and you yearn for the great awakening that is coming. And so you must be on guard at all times. You must shield your ears from the scorn of the ignorant. You must find those who are like you, and you must be prepared to fight. You know all this because you believe in Q. Well, you guys have each written pieces about Q, and so I wonder if you could just tell some of our listeners, what what really is it? What is Q for those who aren't familiar with QAnon? I might read quickly the, the, the definition Wikipedia gives. Their opening sentences to say that QAnon is a far-right conspiracy theory alleging that a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles running a global child sex trafficking ring is plotting against President Trump, who's battling them. This is leading to a day of reckoning involving mass arrests of journalists and politicians. Is that right, wrong? What is QAnon? Well, I think it's largely right. The one nitpick I would make is it's not really far right in the strictest sense. It's really fundamentally pro-Trump. But it is this idea that there is this mysterious figure, Q, who is, the believers say, a, a military or intelligence insider with proof that this corruption is taking place and that Trump is the savior figure who will expose it. So the, the Wikipedia is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they can't put it on Wikipedia unless it's right. But I would also add, <laughs> there's, you know, one of the challenges is, of course, that, and I know people who would identify as being part of Q, and they would say, no, this part's not right, or this part is right. And so it's a very, like many people engaged in believing and spreading conspiracy theories, the descriptions, if you don't describe it exactly the way they think it should be described, it proves you don't know it or don't understand it. And that in and of itself becomes a cycle. So I would say that's a good description. I would agree that President Trump's role is particularly unique in that context as well. And I would say that one of my friends who is QAnon said they had a wide-ranging discussion on both of our articles on some of the, they're called QAnon channels, but both of us don't know what we're talking about. So that basically is what they, what it boils down to. But that's always the case, I think, when you're in sort of that cycle that comes with conspiracy theory thinking. <laughs> Can I ask, do you, do you think that evangelicals are particularly vulnerable? I do. Absolutely. You said that, what, 46%, you said of, of uh, in that Wheaton poll that you mentioned in your piece, self-identifies evangelicals and an even larger majority of Americans with similar religious beliefs, quote, strongly believe that the mainstream media produce fake news. How do you sort of each understand that divide in terms of misunderstanding between particularly evangelicals and mainstream journalists? Well, let me, not, I don't know Adrian's background, but as an evangelical, at an evangelical institution, this is something we saw in 2016 where Russian troll factories specifically and successfully targeted conservative religious people, including evangelicals. So I do think that there is, and I wrote about this in my book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, there is a some sort of path that seems to create an openness to being persuaded. And again, one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about later is, I mean, 
the, Q, the whole QAnon runs down tracks that are very similar, maybe laid by religion that can, I mean, the Great Awakening. I mean, it's it, these are unapologetically religious terms. Yeah, the, there are a lot of really just like direct references where it just neatly lays atop one another. And I'm really curious for your views too then about what it is that makes evangelical people more vulnerable if it's just sort of like, using the same language. But this was something, I mean, the the ultimate conclusion I came to in my piece is not where I started when I started my reporting. It's not at all where I expected to end up. It really came through talking to people who really believed and me just seeing and talking to them that this is was not just a conspiracy theory, but an expression of faith that looked a lot like what I've seen in Christianity. And so it really surprised me. And so I, I'm curious for your views on why that is. Well, and I think there are multiple reasons I would say. One is, is that evangelicals, white evangelicals in particular, they are generally conservative, religious Republicans who voted for President Trump. So if you start there, this is a community that already sort of engages in a pattern of beliefs that say that President Trump is is the good guy and there are bad guys. But when I would add to that, if we start first, I think sometimes people forget, they hear 80 or 81% white evangelicals, and, and they forget that white evangelicals have been Republicans for decades. And for good or for ill, it is a significant part of the identification of the movement. So they were, and then Trump came along and they still are. So maybe we, that's not so shocking. However, I think then you combine this, that Q again, runs down tracks. I don't think I used that language in the USA Today article, though I thought that language. But Q runs down tracks that, for example, there is a a force behind the good things, and there's a force behind the bad things. And the force behind the good things, you know, one of the things that if you read about the history of monotheism, right? Now, keeping in mind, I'm an evangelical Christian, so I'm a monotheist, I'm an evangelical, I believe stuff that a whole lot of people would find to be a conspiracy theory just about who Jesus is and all the things that happen. But monotheism, one of the ways that people thought differently in the ancient world, when your God and your tribe went to war with somebody else's tribe and their God, and you lost, you would say, well, their God is more powerful, and you would adopt their God. So monotheism, and you can read about several, many, many books write about this, monotheism would teach that when we lost, so when the Jews of ancient Israel lost, they would say God is teaching us or God has another plan. Maybe God is punishing us, but this is part of God's plan, which is very much aligns with some of the language we see. For example, Q is about to have the Great Awakening and it didn't happen. The mass arrests are about to happen. It didn't happen. That pizza place turned out not to have a basement and it didn't happen. And yet this shadowy figure is always working behind the scenes. And it just, for me, it sounds like the view of somebody who believes in a monotheistic working figure, working in the background at all times. And of course, the satanic side of that, and some would use the word satanic, some people don't, but the satanic side of that very much aligns with much of what Christians and other faiths as well, what Christians teach and believe that there are evil forces at work in the world behind the scenes. There are demons that oppress and possess and influence the world. And so these, again, it, it's it, there's a hit line in history. You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it tends to rhyme. And I'm not saying religion is completely replicated, but it sure does rhyme with a lot that religion includes. And this is as one who is an evangelical Christian who believes all those evangelical things. Yeah, something I heard a lot from people who, like, I, I would always ask 
people, how did you first hear about Q and were you immediately hooked or was it a sort of slower adoption? And very often people would say, I heard about it and all of a sudden it just felt like it clicked into this thing I was already thinking or feeling. And so that totally matches what you're describing. They were strangely warmed to use some evangelical insider language, but, but no, and I would say, so again, keeping in mind that I'm thinking of one particular person who I'll send this podcast to, who is a wonderful friend, has a deep love for the Lord, says he doesn't buy into some of the more crazy things that Adrian and I did mention. We said that, which would say that we went too far on things, but really believes that she is as a follower of Christ, there's a whole Christian QAnon channel. Not all QAnon people are Christians. And matter of fact, there's diverse, there's a lot of atheists, a lot of the people of other faiths. But what she says is she sees this as a work that the Lord is using her to bring about the rightful work of God and where the Lord would want us to free the captives. The Lord would want us to set free the oppressed. And again, so it very much the picture I use, it, it runs on those same tracks, though, as I share with her, I think ultimately after four or five times, I kind of like maybe once you could like believe the that Wayfair is selling children in overpriced furniture. Maybe one thing, I'm not saying you should be, but maybe you're fooled by one conspiracy. But when that's been debunked, like Seth Rich or Pizzagate or anything else, at some point you can't adopt a monotheistic approach. Well, this is just Q working in mysterious ways. No, you got to just say this is just wrong and I got to move on. And on that front, maybe, Adrian, you could tell us about this gentleman that you talk about in your piece, Edgar Welch, who watched a number of YouTube videos and, and thought he had it right. And then ultimately goes to Comet Ping Pong Restaurant here in D.C., part of Pizzagate with a gun and essentially having binge watched all those videos says upon arrest, quote, the intel on this wasn't 100 percent. Where does it ultimately lead along the lines that Ed's describing in this sort of cosmic good versus evil battle? Right. So the thing that was striking to me about that quote, which was something he said to The New York Times after his arrest, this idea that the intel wasn't 100 percent, was that this person, he saw YouTube videos, he believed that children were really in danger. I mean, reading through the court documents about his arrest and testimony from his family, like it is very persuasive that he genuinely believed he was going to help children and do the right thing. Reckless and taking matters into his own hands, of course. But the, one of the reasons why I found him compelling in this story is because we talk about victims of the conspiracy theorists themselves, but the conspiracy theorists are also victims. In this case, he's a victim of disinformation and misinformation. And so, but back to that quote of the intel wasn't 100% was really revealing to me because it shows that even though he walked into this pizza shop, shot his gun through a door that he perhaps thought was leading to the basement, found that it was simply a computer storage closet, recognized that he hadn't happened upon the scene he expected, put down his weapons, surrendered to the police, and still was holding on to this idea. Instead of saying, oh, I've been completely wrong. This was just bad information from the start. He's still holding on to this belief that the larger thing is true. It just isn't true in this one pizza shop. And that to me demonstrates, and you see this again and again, when you talk to folks who really believe in Q, that it's very hard to deter them away from this belief system once it's ingrained. And so I don't know as much what that says about a battle between good and evil, but it's certainly suggests how difficult it is to sort of bring people back to a place where they can trust their own eyes and facts and empiricism. And that's tremendously troubling. 
Yeah, Ed, I wonder, thinking about journalists who are listening to you today, if you might talk a little bit about the individualist side of evangelicalism. You mentioned Gnosticism in your piece, this idea that there could be, quote, secret knowledge that others wouldn't have, but that you would. So what is it about sort of the potential downside of individual expression of faith in the evangelical story that makes people perhaps more susceptible to, quote, drops by Q that make us feel as if, as Sarah Posner put it in the Times last month, as if one's living through a perpetual cliffhanger upon which rests nothing less than the outcome of a cosmic battle between good and evil. Yeah, let me just say, I believe we're living in a perpetual cliffhanger with the outcome between good and evil. So that language, again, resonates with me. My perception of how that is played out is actually remarkably different. So the what then, your question, I think, is what then does that mean? Why are people inclined towards this and how might we persuade them otherwise? Again, and here's where it gets tricky, because because it resonates with me in religious language and, and the way people think, the way the pathways of people who are religious think. I should say to you, too, because I'm an evangelical, I wrote an article that said evangelicals need to deal with their QAnoners in their midst. Let me also say that one of the things that maybe I needed to do for my own spiritual journey and fulfillment, I did do a little research and found out that there's all kinds of conspiracies that all kinds of people in all kinds of religions believe and share. If it was unique to evangelicalism, I would might have a bit of an existential crisis. So that being said, it's too prevalent in evangelicalism. Adrian talks about if I go through, like I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe ultimately that what Christ has done on the cross and his resurrection changes everything, redeems me and ensures me a new life and ultimately peace with him for eternity. So if I go through a really difficult situation, a faith shattering, which I have, many Christians have, a faith shattering experience. The question is, does that grow my faith? Is there a resilience that comes from my faith? And the answer for most people of faith is yes, it will actually grow my faith going through the trial. The doubt strengthens ultimately res the response that I have. I've walked through some of those things. And thus, I actually have some significant appreciation for people when the disappointments of the drops or these things happen because they're thinking in faith like ways. So I think that the thing that we as evangelical leaders have to do is to really call out that this is the, there's a pattern here. You mentioned Gnosticism. So the pattern of you having a secret knowledge is unhelpful, unbiblical. Actually, Gnosticism is, would be heretical. Furthermore, the idea here, and this is where the individualism is so important, because evangelicalism is largely built upon autonomous individualism, whereas our, our Catholic friends, you know, would have a magisterium, a pope would speak into and say, no, we shouldn't believe this. Evangelicals are deeply Americanized and deeply individualized. So what I would say is, though, this is where the church and what I specifically ask for in my article I think churches need to, when somebody is posting these things on Facebook, I think it's the appropriate thing for pastors and elders of churches to approach and say together and function more as the community and the people of God and approach people who are being misled so that they don't just have everyone's ignoring you because you're a conspiracy theorist. No, here are people who love you, from from whom you hear the, the Bible taught, of whom you worship with, who are not only saying that this is wrong, but it's damaging to your witness. You'll see I mentioned that in there. These are things that resonate with us evangelicals. We don't want to harm our witness, and rightfully so. So I think that individualism 
is a challenge. And I think the church community has to come alongside and say, we need a different way and a different path and speak lovingly and graciously to the people. But it's going to be a challenge. Adrian, did you discern in the research that you did, particularly anti-Semitic elements, fascination with George Soros, for example, or the Rothschilds? Is there is there any other sort of element here that has an uglier side in, in that regard? Definitely. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things that I came across in my reporting and trying to sort of place this in a historical context once I started looking back at previous sort of religious movements and also moments in history where conspiracy theories have flourished, you can go back to the Crusades and find conspiracy theories that just from a narrative standpoint really look like this one that are anti-Semitic, that are fixated on elite groups operating in secret to abuse children, or in that case, they had all kinds of conspiracy theories about the water supply having been spiked, they said, by the Jews to cause the plague, you know, in the 14th century. So you find this very much the sense of history rhyming with some of the narratives and prejudices baked into these conspiracy theories. What's the reach? I mean, what's your sense? Each of you have talked about sort of this anonymous Q person, male or female, making these drops, leaving these crumbs, 4chan first, then 8chan, then 8kun, then maybe from the Twitter metrics. Is it possible to get a rough sense of how broad is the reach? I can try this one. It's really, really hard is the truth. And the way that I approached that was by trying to track its growth more than just quantify the number of people. First of all, there is no formal membership, so you can't look at people who have committed themselves to Q in a formal way, and then further complicated by the fact that it travels online and you don't know who is a true believer versus someone just who's a troll or someone who might be treating it as a fan fiction or a passing curiosity or even a bot or a network of bots for that matter. I mean, we've seen that Q-related content is very much of interest to the sorts of coordinated political activity that you, that is meant to interfere with American politics, certainly. And so there's the, all of these layers of complexity. It's jumping across different social networks. And so you can see how it's amplified. You can certainly look at things like the number of congressional candidates who have openly professed to support Q was something that I looked at. But for me, I ultimately, and this was something our fact checkers really pressed me on, they wanted me to have a number or a range. And I just felt like I couldn't definitively say anything other than we can tell that it's growing very quickly and spreading globally, but hard to say for sure the numbers. I can actually answer far more particularly than Adrian is. I absolutely have no idea. I would say for me, I read Adrian's article. I then, I went to a school in Northwest Georgia, in Rome, Georgia, and the congressional candidate from there is, I see now is a QAnon uh, supporter and that caught my attention. And then I've written an article gosh, a few years ago, called Gullibility is Not a Spiritual Gift and How Christians Are Being Too Easily Fooled by Conspiracies. And QAnon, to my recollection, I don't mention QAnon, but I I mentioned being fooled by Pizzagate because that was pretty, you know, that was contemporary at that time. And I think maybe the Seth Rich conspiracy. And I kind of, for good or for bad, I have a large footprint in social media. So I tweeted this article and I mentioned Pizzagate and Seth Rich being, you know, discredited. And what was fascinating to me, not was, because people look through these things and, and they respond. What was fascinating to me was how many people who followed me. Now, I've got, I guess, about 250,000 Twitter followers. So it's kind of, I have, I'm not, my followers may not represent my views or values, 
But a lot of people had followed me. I used to follow everybody back. So they followed me long enough that I followed them back. And yet they were very quick to defend QAnon and conspiracy theories. So I began to see, okay, so my evangelical communities mentioned, you know, Adrian mentioned evangelical community, went to college in an area that's now maybe, I mean, it almost certainly is going to be represented by a QAnon supporter. And then the social media thing, I said, you know, I need to weigh in a little more. I wrote a editorial for the Dallas Morning News that didn't touch on QAnon. It was just on conspiracy theories in general. Got a People were really responding to it. A lot of people asked about QAnon, and then the USA Today article kind of came out of that. So for me, numerically, don't know. See it far too much impacting people I know and the community that I love. You each hinted at elements of sort of its doctrine, what really sort of makes QQ, and there's, of course, there's lots of of inputs. But I I wonder if, if you might reflect a little bit on, like, the aspect that the, we're living in the internet age and that it's possible this new film on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, that's gotten some traction, thinking about the rabbit hole concept that New York Times has a thing about sort of increasingly AI, you know, siphoning to you particularly entertainment and media stories and hits of interest to you already and increasingly sort of dislocating you from your neighbors and undermining friendship in the process and the like. Is there some piece that you think is sort of tied to yeah, the digital transformation and the, particularly the pandemic and being often locked up at home for, for now six or seven months. I think the digital transformation, absolutely. I mean, I think you look at the sort of like triple revolution of the internet and the mobile web and social media. And that is, to me, 100% why QAnon is as big as it is. In the past, the way that conspiracy, I mean, humans have always been prone to conspiracy thinking, and that's just part of our nature. And some are more predisposed to it than others. But in the past, the main way that a conspiracy theory would spread would be locally because of technological constraints. And then also, you know, maybe through letters to the editor of newspapers, you can see this in old newspaper archives. You can find like people saying the government's controlling the weather, that kind of thing. Now the entire architecture of the social web is built to create conditions that allow conspiracy theories to thrive. And so you have the ease of publishing is one. You have sort of these environments where snap emotional responses and speed and as much content as possible are encouraged. And of course, the scale, just the sheer scale. And you sort of alluded to this, but the algorithms too. And so we're, we, we have this sort of environment that's perfectly crafted to amplify and spread anything, basically, but particularly things that are highly engaging to people. And then on top of that, you have algorithms that are siphoning people into places where they mostly see the things that have either interested them before, or they've reacted to, or appealed to their worldview, and which, of course, then divides us. So I think it's a huge, huge part of the story, in my view. (laughs) Yeah, let me add to, I think that uh, to use language, I, I wrote in this book, Christians in the Age of Outrage. I, I did a whole chapter on social media and and the cause and the challenges of it. The example I started with was ancient Rome had indoor plumbing. It might surprise some people. And the spring water would be brought in by pipes and they'd cook their food in these containers. They were all made of lead. And uh, it was a wonderful thing that enabled a whole new way of life except they were all made of lead. And we know the implications that come from that. And I would say that social media we're finding out is made of lead and it has a lot of good. It's maybe advanced a lot of things, but the damage is pretty substantive. And the way I put it in the book is 
Far too many Christians are being discipled by their cable news choices and spiritually shaped by their social media feed. And in a sense, we haven't used the word radicalized because we want to be careful about that kind of language, and I get that. But it does create what I talk about as an echo chamber. I mean, that's not language unique to me, but it creates an echo chamber that does allow you to start believing bad things and then believe the absolute worst thing you possibly could because other people have shared it. So I I do think we'll look back 100 years from now and we'll see a significant damage that social media has done to the fabric of our society. And this is from somebody who's very engaged in social media. I even have a TikTok. And so though I've I've only talked once, but I, I really am very engaged in social media. But I think the damage is going to be substantive. And one of the key things we'll look at is, I mean, I can't imagine when I talk about Facebook or Twitter, I I don't necessarily think immediate fond thoughts of everything that's on there. But I can also imagine trying to stop the advance of all of these things, because literally your algorithm, as Adrian just mentioned, your algorithm promotes that. For example, when I wrote the article on QAnon and I tweeted about the article on QAnon and QAnon people started to respond to me, literally my Twitter feed was now predominantly filled with QAnon people. So me, who wrote an article critiquing, I don't know if you had the same thing, Adrian, but I'm, I'm all of a sudden like seeing, and some of them are not talking anything about what I wrote or what you wrote, but now it, Twitter just thinks I'd be interested in seeing this. Twitter is trying to increase my engagement. That's their business model. And it ends up creating this echo chamber, which is a big part of, I think, the challenge in the Christian community right now is Christians often feel, particularly evangelical Christians, conservative religious people feel out of the mainstream, put upon and beset. And I think that this kind of social media can give them both an outlet, but it also ends up being an echo chamber that can be problematic. I totally agree. That's I had a very similar experience, mainly on Facebook, where I did a lot of my reporting and I don't otherwise use Facebook really. And so I still, to this day, am getting regular emails from Facebook being like, hey, check out this group. We think you'll like it. And it's all like Patriot Revolution and Q Army and stuff like that. I'm curious, Ed, if I could ask a question, if that's okay. Please. One of the things I've thought about a lot in reporting this story that I did for The Atlantic was, and this is related to the internet, which I also love, but have you know t- torn feelings about, but was this question of how religious communities are formed online. And like, on one hand, there's something really exciting and positive potentially about having a geographically disaggregated way to form community. And on the other hand, there's all of the things that you lose from not being in close proximity in the context of church, not being among each other. I mean, you can, it's very clear to me why that there are drawbacks there, but I'm curious for your views about how the internet more broadly will change religion. And and specifically, because sort of the premise of my piece is that we're possibly watching sort of a baby religion form online. Like, is the future of religion going to be that religious movements form predominantly online? Yeah, I'm just sort of curious for all your views on all of that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good question. And I did find fascinating that part of your of your piece. And I do think that 20 years from now, we'll have obviously a clearer answer on that question. It's always easier to look back and see. And I wouldn't be surprised if religious offshoots may be a way to put it. And if QAnon's evangelical branch is a religious offshoot of evangelicalism, if religious offshoots do emerge from that context, I do think the formation of new religious groups has happened online for already. That's not an uncommon thing uh, already. And I would say that people of devout faith of more 
mainstream faiths from Catholicism to evangelicalism to whatever else it may be, that that does become a place where they discuss and are often seeing their faith shaped. So in evangelicalism, I'm a blogger at a site called Christianity Today, which is kind of the magazine of evangelical record. And it shapes kind of a center to center right evangelicalism. And there are things they talk about, things they don't, or others like the Gospel Coalition would be a little more to the right of that, and they shape a conversation. So I think there is a shaping and a maintaining, if you will, even a guarding of the guardrails of religious traditions that online creates. I think we've seen some where new ideas and new expressions of religion have come out of online communities. I wouldn't say yet we've seen the birthing of a modern religious tradition. It's been a long, I mean, if you look at probably the two significant ones would be, you know, Mormonism and maybe Pentecostalism, which is a form of evangelicalism generally, but both American-based kind of spread around the world and have significant online presence today. But I don't know that we've seen yet. Could we? Yes. Could we see something that is the next Mormonism birthed in an online milieu? I wouldn't be surprised because people's lives are increasingly kind of around that. My, I was talking to my daughter last night. I have a teenage daughter, three daughters. One's a teenager. Two's a te- two are teenager. One's in high school. And she talked to me. We were talking about reducing her screen time because of the pandemic and everyone else. And she said, I, got, I was down to three hours today. And I was like, so wait, that's down? That's the reduced time? Of course, she's online school because of the pandemic and and all. She said, oh, dad, yeah, this is, I mean, my friends are 10 and 11 hours a day. So I do think that can shape you. And for parents or for even pastors who have pastoral care about their congregations, that shaping can be much more influential than the hour or two they get in church each week. If I can ask one more question, the thing you were saying earlier about the need for people to confront sort of believers of QAnon or other conspiracy theories with a mode of like love and respect that really resonates with me. And it's something I thought about a lot in reporting my piece, because what I've observed in other coverage has been just like really snarky, disrespectful. And I understand the impulse to be like, this is ridiculous. This is nonsense. What are you thinking? But I also feel like people are worthy of, of respect and consideration and understanding, even when they're thinking, crazy things. And so I guess one thing that that raises for me is I'm curious for your views on how journalists can do a better job reaching people, not just respectfully covering things that are dangerous, but also hopefully getting through to them, even when they're not maybe in their same church community to help them see and care about what's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think a lot of particularly conservative religious people have decided that journalists can't be trusted. They feel their community has been, you know, misreported upon. As a matter of fact, Terry Mattingly actually quoted me in a Get Religion piece. It's sort of their religion analysis blog, where I talk a little bit about, I think, one of the reasons that we have for good or for bad, a significant number of people who are more open to conspiracy theories is they have discounted the mainstream media. And one of the reasons they've discounted the mainstream media is they've determined that the mainstream media, not that there even is a mainstream media, but anyway, they've determined that significant parts of what they would call the mainstream media don't want to honestly and accurately report on them. I mean, I think there is truth to that. You know, I was reading an article about Amy Coney Barrett and the first thing called her a fundamentalist in this article in a major publication. The AP Style Guide says you don't use fundamentalists unless a group describes itself that way. And fundamentalist Catholic, is that, do you mean traditionalist? Is that even, and would that even fit the description of her movement? And so I think when people see 
a consistency that they are either misunderstood or intentionally misrepresented, they become more suspicious. So I think things like RNA, Religion News Rights Association, other places help people to understand religion better. I received an email through our communications people here, and it was a reporter at a, a well-known newspaper. You know the name of it. But I know the, relig- the two religion reporters at that newspaper. And I said, I want to know if that person's working with those two people or not, because it's just a different conversation. Emma Green, of course, writes for you at The Atlantic. And Emma does an amazing job. And she gets religion. She understands it. So and I think people, one of the reasons Emma is widely read is because people know that she both understands people of religious faith and can explain them to people who don't. And so I think partly if the media, that's a thing, if the media wants to make greater impact persuading people, which is the thesis of your question, I think the media needs to be perceived. And I would say the Atlantic has made great strides in the area, among other publications as well, needs to be perceived as understanding and engaging the issues. Because as one who who literally pays money to subscribe to some of these things, and I, when I tweet an article from the Washington Post, where I write for some, or CNN that I write for some, I literally get people in my community saying, why are you even writing for them? They're liars. They're the, I mean, the enemy. I mean, literally the enemy from people who I find otherwise reasonable. I'm not saying it's all because they have been misreported on. I believe there's that echo chamber that creates that. But I think there's, I, I like the compassion I hear in your voice. This is going to, people are going to get killed unless we find a way to help people to know what's real and what's not real. And if we continue to see people self-radicalized through social media, it's going to lead. I mean, it almost led to, with the uh, pizza parlor, it can lead to some pretty serious consequences. I'm totally with you. Yeah. And let me say, too, one of the reasons for for me that I specifically mentioned President Trump in my article was his inability to respond and say not an uncommon thing for him not to respond that way. But I, I, would, I would ask you a question, if I could. What do you see as some of the implications of people in power who are liked and affirmed by conspiracy theorists in general? What are the implications long term if those people don't call out those very conspiracy theorists? It's really troubling. I think, and people have asked me this question a lot, and I think there are two ways to look at it. One is the rise of conspiracy theories, the end of shared reality, and all of the after effects from that, which are really troubling. And the other is more political, and it's just the endurance of Trumpism, I think. You know, you mentioned your hometown and the congressional, the the primary that Marjorie Taylor Greene won and looks very well positioned to win the general. And she's espoused pro-Q beliefs. And a lot of people have asked, so what does that mean when Q is also in Congress or represented in Congress, basically? And I think that in that case, it's really that people are seeing that using Trump's playbook works and whatever that means. Maybe it means inciting violence or calling members of the press who are attempting to represent the people, enemy of the people. So I see that as yeah, the, the issue is really twofold. It's an end of shared reality is the biggest concern. And then within that, the endurance of Trumpism, which stokes these same conditions that are eroding our sense of shared reality. Well, if there are divides to be bridged there, whether it's uh, on the sort of journalism interacting with religious leaders and vice versa front, or whether it's elites, and let's face it, you know, you think of Wheaton College and Christianity Today and the Atlantic as being mostly 
sort of resources, institutions aimed at sort of elites more than at mainstream populist people. Got lots of work to do on politicians, politically as well. Hey, listen, thank you so much for being on today. We hope this is a small part of the larger solution as well. And all best for a great rest of the day. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun to talk to you both. Fascinating indeed. Faith Angle exists to connect cutting-edge scholars, policy shapers, and nationwide journalists. Thanks for listening.